The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. And we'll be looking at the second half of verse 5. But I'd like to read beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, But do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, this is indeed God's word for us tonight. I saw on Facebook this week, a pastor saying that his church had bought him a clock for the pulpit. And the next post was him saying that the sermon that immediately followed that went for more than an hour and 28 minutes. And I thought, I can do better than that. Just teasing. I'm not, <clears throat> not going to do that, I promise. So, um, in the time that we have allotted for us in the next 40 plus minutes, uh, we want to consider this element of Christian love. Now, those of you who have heard a little bit of uh, my growing up and my childhood know that I, I did move around a fair amount. I sat down and counted up uh, the times that I've moved, and it's somewhere in the mid to high 20s, basically, from what I could tell. And I remember as a kid, one of those houses that we, we moved to had, a, had an orchard that uh, we probably had 20 or 25 trees in it. And because we were new to the house, I had no idea what sorts of fruit would be coming out of those trees. And we moved during the winter, so we had to wait for the spring. And they, none of the trees were labeled, so it's not rocket science to figure it out. How do you know what kind of fruit tree a fruit tree is. Well, you wait for it to produce fruit. And so there were lots of trees in in the orchard, but I remember two in particular. One was a Japanese plum tree, and I loved that tree. 
it gave the most amazing, like bright yellow plums I've ever had in my life. The other had these crusty old nasty apples that had one purpose, chucking at your little brother. Not that I know this from experience, but I have an imagination. Uh, So a, a tree is known not by what it calls itself, not why, but what it hopes to aspire to be. A tree is known by the fruit that it puts out. You might say, well, that sounds, maybe I get it makes sense with trees, but maybe when applied to persons, it doesn't work. Because I mean, we, we have these phrases that we've either heard or used, and uh, one of them I've heard recently is, uh, that's not who I really am. The way that I've been acting for a long time, that's not me. My argument is, no, it is. Now, there's a difference between saying, that's not me, which is wrong, versus, that's not what I should be like. And I pray that God would transform me. Now, the second one of those is actually what you could describe the Christian life as being. The need, the recognizing the need for God to change us, grow us, and transform us more into his likeness and image. And so as we look tonight again at a tough passage, there's going to be, if you're like me, uh, a few waves of conviction as you look at what the text says, and then you look at the fruit of your life, and you're like, love isn't irritable. Ah, oh, man, why they have to pick that word? Uh, there's going to be some conviction. There's going to be times where we're going to be tempted to say either that's not me or the other side of that same ditch, I've always been that way. I haven't changed yet, and I don't see changing anytime soon. Both of those ditches are, are just nonsense. What we should do in the areas where we're convicted is pray that God would work these things in us more fully. So as we, as we look in the mirror of his word tonight, uh, I can just give you a heads up. There'll be times where you're going, man, my love is so easily irritated. That's not the way God has loved me. That's not the way I should love others. Change needs to happen. So far, so good. That is a wonderful grace of God if he would pull back the veil on our eyes and show us these things, but I don't want it to stop there. The goal of God's word in in this passage for us tonight isn't crawl out of here feeling about this big. It's not the goal. The goal is transformation, that he would actually change us. And, and so let's approach it with that in mind. Lord, show us the, the bad fruit in our life that needs to change, and then may we go to you to change the, the roots in our life that we would actually begin and grow in bearing God-exalting, Christ-exalting fruit of love in our hearts and in our lives. And so under this bigger theme of uh, Love is the earmark or the the telling mark of a Christian. We want to consider three more fruits of that biblical love tonight. 
The first that we want to consider is found in verse 5, and that is this love, or biblical love, or love as, as God would have it to be, is not self-seeking. Biblical love is not self-seeking. If you look at verse 5, we mentioned at the end of uh, last Wednesday that, uh, that our love is not to be rude, it's not to be pushy, bullish, obnoxious, or inappropriate in its expressions. And then uh, he goes from rude to, again, continuing with the negatives, love does not insist on its own way. The ESV says it that way. The NIV says uh, love is not self-seeking. The idea is that the way that we love one another isn't uh, seeking our own advantage or I'm going to love you uh, either so that I receive something in return for that or loving someone else uh, with my own parameters uh, put around it in a self-serving or what we could call a self-insisting way. Phil Riken says, biblical love does not love for self-interest or self-advantage. It does not pursue self-gratification, but practices self-denial. The way that the world loves, and, and we talked about this uh, last week, and I was talking with Pastor Charlie about it even just this afternoon, the way that the world loves so influences us that we, we're, we're just blind to most of it, I think. So many of the categories and the ways that we think and reason through loving one another is really hard to distinguish from the way that the world does it. You and I are, are, are just prone in the way that we're bent sinfully to love in ways that are insistent on what I want to get out of this relationship or what I want to get out of this situation. And you can even hear it in the way that people talk. That person doesn't make me feel good anymore. Or this relationship just isn't doing it for me any longer. Or I, was, I fell into love as though it were a pothole and then somehow tumbled up out of that hole later and fell out of love. We talk about love as though it were an accident that winds you up in the ER. That's not the way the Bible talks about love. Love does not have on the forefront of its mind what do I get out of this? Or under what terms do I proceed with this? Now, I, I, we have to say at this point, this is not the way that God created us. A Adam was not made in the garden with this sense of self-love or self-interest in the forefront of his mind. He was actually created before the fall quite differently than we are now. Jonathan Edwards draws this out beautifully, and I'll, I'll give an extended quote from him uh, to this end. He says that when the eternal God created mankind, that man's soul was under the government of divine love, 
and was large enough to love and to seek the good of all of his neighbors, man's heart loved God and would swim upon the infinite ocean of God's goodness and was, as it were, swallowed up by it. But when man fell into sin and, his, and was ruined by the fall, he lost his love for God and his love for his neighbor, and he, has no lo- and he is no longer governed and guided by divine love, but fell entirely under the power and the government of self-love. Edwards continues, he says, self-love becomes the master of man's soul. The enlargement of his heart is gone, and it shrinks, as it were, into this little space confined and closed up within itself to the exclusion of everything else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness, and God was forsaken, and fellow creatures forsaken, And man retired totally within himself and became governed by a narrow selfish principle and feeling. What a a graphic way of saying that when God created man before sin came to the world, he had a heart that that was vast and able to love God freely and to love one another freely. And when sin entered our lives, well, in Adam and Eve's sense, and then with all of their children afterwards, it shrunk our heart down so small that that little shriveled thing called self filled all of it. And that's the way that we move forward in loving one another. Phil Riken says our lifelong love for ourself is the one love affair that most of us never abandon. The way that the world loves insists on its own way. The way that God's word calls us to love does not. The way that the world loves is saturated with selfishness. The way that God calls us to love is in a selfless manner. Again, love seeks to, to, it seeks the good of those around us, asking how, how can I bless them? How can I increase them? How can I grow them? How can I serve them? And I'm willing to do it not out of the abundance and overflow of my life. I'm willing to do it at cost to myself. So saying the things that are, well, mine are at the disposal of the service of others. That, that's what the Bible calls us to, to serve one another selflessly, not selfishly. So some would hear that, say love doesn't insist on its own way, love doesn't make all these demands, love isn't self-serving and self-seeking, and the, the response that they would walk away with would, would sound something like this. So you're saying, I should just get run over by people in my life. That's not what Paul's saying. So you're saying I can never have my own thoughts and ideas. Nope, don't remember saying anything of the like. So you're saying I, I have to just be a doormat. No. What I'm saying is true biblical love 
is not a demanding love. It's a love that gives, a love that seeks, a love that instead of gazing at itself and its wants and wishes, is a love that has its eyes up and eyes on others and asks, what do they need? How can I serve them in a God-honoring way? It's a love that almost loses a sense of itself. A love that's selfish just turns inward and continues in a downward spiral. A love that is selfless is one that looks around at the needs of others. The biblical kind of love that it was demonstrated for us in Christ and is to be cultivated in us is a love that looks to other people to serve them not one that's always grabbing and grasping at what I need and making those demands and making everyone around me know what those demands are and letting them know if they ever fail to meet those demands. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way that we are called to love each other. We're called to love each other in a selfless manner or in an others-seeking way, not a self-seeking way. The second aspect of biblical love that Paul gives us uh, this evening is that Christian love is not irritable. Now, I know what you're thinking. I hope the Greek says something different. I looked it up in the best Greek lexicon. And when it gave me what the meaning of this word was, it was irritable. I was super disappointed. I was hoping it meant something else entirely. No, it's just, it's just actually a really, really plain, easy word to understand. It means a love that is easily offended. A love quickly angered. A love that is, uh, as one author puts it, not, not in a positive sense, but in a negative sense, uh, a love that's touchy. Or as Dr. Plummer put it, love... Uh, is not to be embittered by injuries, either real or imagined. A a love that doesn't um, quickly get set off by those around it. Or, as Edwards put it, love is not to be uh, quickly angered or set off by ill-suited anger. It has that idea of either irritableness or, or anger And those happen when the things around us, like irritation or anger, depending on what kind of level we're talking about, um, it requires life to not be going the way that I want it. When I'm getting everything that I want, guess what I'm not? I'm not irritated. I'm not angry. Like if you bring me bacon, I'm not going to be mad unless it's like really floppy bacon, in which case I'm like, put it back on the grill for a little bit longer, but I'm not going to be irritated by that. If you were to give me elk steaks, you can tell I haven't had dinner yet tonight. So uh, if you give me elk steaks, I'm going to be like, man, the Lord bless you and cause his smile to fall on your children. Like that's no, those are not the things that irritate us. The things that irritate us are when I have this expectation and want of what life ought to be. And then life isn't that thing. 
now. We live in a world that is full of things that do not go our way. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world full of other people who don't always behave and speak just the way that we wish that they would. And so love is going to be lived out in that kind of a world. It's not life on just a calm, smooth, glassy sea. It's life lived uh, in a, sometimes it's pretty rough. Sometimes things really don't go the way that we wish that they would. And so what kind of love should the Christian have? The Christian should have, and this is like where it gets really convicting, a love that is hard to offend. That's the kind of love a Christian should have. One that is hard to offend. Now, we usually drive, as Christians, we like to drive in ditches. And so we've got two ditches we need to be aware of at this point in our thinking and living out of love. The first ditch is that we like, do you remember the scene in the Garden of Eden where the Lord causes all of the animals to pass in front of Adam? And what does Adam do as God's viceroy and ruler over creation? He names all the animals. We do that with some of our sins. We just rename them and think that we're setting them outside the borders of what God talks about. So it's not that I was angry. I was upset. I don't know any Bible verses that have the word upset in them. I was upset. Or I was hungry and angry. So we would call it hangry. And that, that's what it was. Or I was frustrated. I don't know any verses. You can look in a concordance. The Bible never says frustrated. Or if you were raised where I was, there's the compilation word Flustrated, which is a combination of frustrated and flustered that doesn't make sense when you squish it together. But that's what we did. That's the way we talked because we were homeschooled in weird hicks. So that's, that's some of the ways we try to get around it. Or in a uh, similar to renaming, we start to give accompanying circumstances that help explain it. I'm tired. I've had a bad day. The kids are not behaving the way that I wish that they would. The house doesn't look the way that I want to. I mean, you could fill in the blank as to all of these reasons as to why what is clearly frustration, irritability, or anger is in our lives. We want all these other reasons to point to as to why that's acceptable or, or, or not wrong. The other ditch that we like to drive in is that we can, especially if you've been raised or really familiar with certain church uh, backgrounds and practices, we could almost view being easy to offend as a mark of spirituality. You might say, how is that a mark of spirituality? There are some who think the more spiritual I am, the easier it is to offend me because I'm so holy that obviously your crazy messed up life is really odious to me, and quickly so. If you haven't met these 
people God has blessed you. Uh, it's a way that we could think the, the more, the closer I get to God, the easier it is to offend me. And so I get offended, uh, at, well, like at everything. And we can walk around, I'm sorry for the word picture, with these gigantic toes that people can't even step in the room without stepping on my toes. They don't talk the way I wish they would. They don't dress the way that I wish that they uh, think that they should. They don't raise their kids the way that I think they should raise their kids. They don't have the same sensibilities about music, movies, or whatever. We have all of these things. So these huge toes are out there. And it's really hard to live in community with giant toes and people with big feet. Right? Like, that's just, that's going to be a bad combination. That's probably the only thing you're going to take out of here, but he had some weird feet analogies and was talking about bacon. We can think that that's some sort of mark of spirituality. Being spiritual means that it's actually hard to offend me. that's That's a real mark of spirituality. A love... That as Paul says, is not irritable. So we can try to rename it. Doesn't work. We could try to be like, well, that's just because I'm so holy. Not buying it. The person, the man, the woman in whom God has worked long and patiently with is hard to offend. I get the, that, that that just comes off as not even preaching, but meddling at that point. So I'm going to shift your attention to Jonathan Edwards, who said, uh, many persons are of such a proud, peevish disposition that they will be angry at anything that is in any respect against them or troublesome to them or contrary to their wishes, whether anybody is to blame or not. I don't want hands raised or testimonies given. But if you ever known someone who they're mad and you walk into the room, you have nothing to do with why they're mad. But you are the closest human being to them. And so now they're mad at you for some crazy reason. Even though you did nothing, doesn't matter. You're the other person in the room, you must have something to do with this. I mean, there are people like that who are so, I love the word Edwards uses, peevish, that the people, we force the people around us to walk on eggshells. We ought to then be a people who are not easily angered, not easily offended, not irritable, touchy, because as Edwards says, it's actually the root of that is pride. I deserve life to look a certain kind of way. And it's not looking that way. And so, by anger, I will bring it back into conformity. Paul says, Christian love does not do that. When the sovereignty of self is assailed by those things around us and we want our way and it's different than what we wanted and the people around us are acting or speaking differently than we want them to, that, that is just going to happen in life. 
until you're taken into glory, there will be opportunities to be um, irritated and angered and offended in this life. The Christian should then go through that life being very difficult to anger. Now, now obviously, are there occasions where uh, a right anger can be had? I actually think there, there is. I think sometimes we're not mad at the things we should be mad at. There's um, systematic slaughter that happens in our country. That's something we should be pretty upset by. There's uh, destructive things in the life of people we love. That's actually something that we should be like not real pleased with. But when it comes to the assailing of our own comforts, wants, and wishes, Christian love should be hard to offend. And rather than trying to blame, uh, you know, because we say like, well, it's I was hungry or I was tired or I was this or that. What we need to realize is instead of like Adam and Eve in the garden and pointing fingers at everyone, Adam kind of pointed two different fingers, the woman whom you, so Adam, oddly enough, sort of tries to blame God in all of it as well. Instead of blaming the circumstances around us, just saying, you know what? These things in my life are not the cause of my sinful anger. They're the occasion, right? So one of the illustrations I would use in counseling someone is... uh, the situation is like the boiling water. That, that's life. Life is turbulent. Life is hot. My heart is the tea bag that gets dropped into it. And so these circumstances, yeah, they draw out what's there, but they didn't put the tea there. Right? The anger and the annoyance and the uh, irritability, that didn't come from traffic. It came from this thing. It didn't come from my hungry belly. It came from this thing. It didn't come from my spouse. It came from this thing. As long as we're going to blame everyone around us or the circumstances around us, we're never actually going to get to the root of the issues. We're never actually going to seek God to transform us. If I, even if I do seek God in those circumstances, usually it looks like what? Fix that person. They need to get their act together. Fix this circumstance. It needs to be, we, we want God to change the boiling water around instead of being like, Lord, change this wretched thing because it's so proud It snaps at everyone around me. We should seek God to change us. Are there times to pray for the circumstances and for other people? Yes. But it would be in a secondary sense. I need transformation. And I need to believe at the core of who I am that I need God's transforming work more than anyone else in the world. As long as I'm thinking it's someone else, I'm going to be just unloading responsibility and not looking to God for transformation. The third thing we need to consider 
tonight is that Christian love is not resentful. Now, I actually think that there is a, not a, a, a golden chain necessarily in verse 5, but do you not see a logical progression in these three? Love doesn't insist on its own way. Now, what happens when our own way isn't met? Oh, sometimes we're tempted towards irritability. Oh, that's the next one that he mentions. And then when, when those things aren't met and I get irritated with the circumstances around and that continues over time, isn't the temptation then towards, well, resentment? Well, yeah, it's actually like Paul sort of, I think, sees these all three kind of run together or all iterations of the same heart issue, which is ultimately going to be pride. So what does it mean that, a, that Christian love is not... Uh, resentful. Some translations will say love uh, thinks no evil. I I just don't, number one, I don't understand where on earth they came up with that translation. Um, But the way that the ESV puts it is, I think, just really plain good English. Resentful. The Greek word that Paul uses actually, or it's, it's a bit of a, it's a short phrase. It means love does not calculate evil and the the picture is that of like uh, an accountant like a nerd I'm sorry if you're an accountant here but a kind of a nerd a nerd with a good profession makes good money but a nerd anyway uh, a bookkeeper they're sticklers God knew we needed people like that especially people like me need people like that in my life detail oriented people for those of us that are not, that we need them in our life. The picture is that of a very detail-oriented bookkeeper and a ledger in which everything gets written down. Paul says, love doesn't do that. You might say, love doesn't believe in accounting? No, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs is the idea. There's, there ought to be, with regards to love, not a record book of wrongs suffered. The, 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 we would use words like an inventory or a ledger or a record. Leon Morris says, love does not take notice of every evil thing that people do and hold it against them. Love takes no account of evil. It doesn't harbor a sense of injury. One of the really potent stories that I've heard on this, I, I read it in a book by Dr. James Adams, uh, kind of a pioneer with regards to Christian counseling. And he said a couple came in for uh, marriage counseling. Not the, that's, that's not rare, right? You get two sinners in covenant together, guess what's going to happen? Uh, sin is going to happen and, and he, sometimes things need to get worked out. And so the couple comes in, sits down in front of Dr. Adams, and he says, what seems to be the problem? And the wife goes, I'm not picking on the wife, that's just how the story went. The wife goes, oh, I'll tell you what the problem is. Pulls out a stack of paper over an inch thick and hands it to him. And Adams says, as he looked, he says it was eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper, over an inch thick, 11-point font, single-spaced, double-sided. 
she'd kept a record of every sin he'd committed against her. And Adam said he just couldn't believe what he was looking through. And she said, that's the problem. And Adam says, it is. You just, we're not talking about the same thing. The fact that your love kept records is probably the thing that's poisoned your marriage more than anything else. Shock of shocks, you married a sinner. Guess what sinners do? Yeah, they sin from time to time. That's how they got that name. But the record keeping, the accounting, the recording, Paul says Christian love doesn't do that. Christian love does not keep accounts of wrongs suffered. Now this is, is actually a, probably the most convicting part of this whole section for me personally, right? It does not deny that real wrongs have been done to you. It doesn't deny that. Paul is not saying, you say people sin against you, eh, you're making it up, you're inflating it, you're blowing it out of proportion. They didn't really sin, they didn't mean, like, no. He actually, the word he uses is the word for evil. He's admitting you've had evil perpetrated against you. Not denying it. The way love responds, Bonds to that. Now that's the key. That's the part you can control. You and I don't have the power to control whether or not people sin against us. I hope that's not news for somebody around here. We don't get to control other people in our lives. But how do we respond to that? How do we respond when people send all sorts of hurts and sins and wrongs and evils against us. And that resenting is that sense of keeping track of them. Now, a question I've wrestled with, with this text, and probably more pointedly in my own heart, is why do we do that? Have you ever thought, why do I keep track of that stuff? I don't don't know if I'm the only weird one who thinks that, but like, I've thought about what would motivate a husband to keep a ledger regarding his wife or a friend to keep a ledger regarding his friend or a child, a ledger on the parent or or whatever relationship you want to plug into that rubric. Why do we keep those? We keep them for a reason. It's not like we just accidentally do it and like, I don't know, it's that way. I, put my, I always put my right sock on first instead of my left. I don't know why. It's not like that. I don't think I do put the right one on first anyway, but that's irrelevant. Why do we do that? Well, I think there's a few reasons. Both of them are terribly convicting. The first is this. I think it's a means of defense. We've been hurt. Undeniable. I've had... Terrible things done against me. Some of you have had sins against you that I can't even imagine. Not denying that. And so we hold on to it so that if ever that person comes back at me, 
I've got this ready to go. It's a means of defense. It's a way of trying to protect ourselves. We hold on to an offense so that if the day should arise where they should want to cross swords again, I could level that back at them and I wouldn't want to lose my advantage. There's a, 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 the closest I could get, and I, I've used this in a number of counseling situations and it's a little more uh, graphic, but I think it paints the picture. It's like when someone sins against you, they shoot you with an arrow, which is kind of like, what, I've never been shot with an arrow, but I imagine it hurts. There's some hurts that you've suffered where you're like, I'd go for the arrow over what actually happened, right? They shoot you with an arrow, a wrong suffered. And what do we do? We pull it out, clean it off, and on the wet stone of memory, we sharpen those edges again. And each time we think about it, it gets a little clearer, the details at least. And we think of it again. And I put it in my quiver. I'm not going to go find them or seek them out. But if ever they want to rumble again, I could shoot that right back at them. That's how we use ledgers of wrong suffered. It really is. And if you doubt it, hopefully no one here doubts that, you can see it in an argument unfold in front of you. A spouse says something inflammatory and the other spouse goes, oh, you want to go there? Well, let's go there. And what happens? The ledgers come out and arrows start flying. Or at Thanksgiving, the kids are back at the house to see mom and dad. It's supposed to be a feast. It's supposed to be happy. It's supposed to be turkey and cranberry sauce and gravy. But the quivers come out. And we have them all ready and we launch them again. That's, it's a, it's a form of defense. And there's times even, you know it's true. Maybe you're like, I don't ever bring it up. I don't ever say it. I'm like sitting there hating Thanksgiving. I hate holidays. Or when they're yelling at me, I'm just, I lock up, I'm quiet. For the quiet ones among us, what we do is we lay in bed at night and we watch reruns. To those who don't know what reruns are, you were born after the 90s, I would take it. So, you used to not get a pick what was on TV. I know, it sounds barbaric. But we didn't have all, this, uh, all these options anymore and you didn't used to be able to skip ads. I know. But they would, they would play old episodes when they weren't playing new ones. And you'd be like, that was, that's all that was on. And so you just, you'd watch reruns knowing it again. You'd see, you know exactly what's going to happen, but you watch it anyway. We do that with our minds at night. We watch reruns. In the quiet, we're playing an offense. To sharpen those details again and to feel a little more justified in what happened. Paul says, love it doesn't watch reruns. It doesn't clean up the arrows and put them in, in the quiver again. We'll get to what love does in response. There's a second motivation. Uh, this one's not nearly uh, as uh, front in the mind as some of the others. Um, but a, another reason why I think we might keep accounts would be something like this. We're worried either God will forget. And you're like, my theology's too good to think that. 
Like, okay, whatever, I'm the only one who has bad theology at times, right? Uh, we, we, God might forget. Or I'm not really convinced he'll settle everything on the last day. So I'm going to take a piece of it now. You're like, man, you're morbid in your mind. Like, like I said, I've done some thinking on this. We want them to suffer because of what they did. To some degree. And in our clearer moments, we, or in our less clear moments, we say either with our words or with our actions, we don't fully trust the legal accounting of God to deal with them. To be the, the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Got to quote the whole verse. Says the Lord. He's the one who settles it, not us. We should realize that the person who sins against us, whoever it is, they're going to be judged on one of two days, right? There's two big judgment days in Scripture. The big one at the end and Calvary. The person who has hurt me is not a Christian. God will settle the score at the end. And he will make such a settling that we will tremble at the greatness of the punishment. And no one will say on that day, you were kind of easy on them. Like, the smoke of their torment will go up forever. We don't need to try to take some of it now. And in fact, we have no right to. The other is true, and this is actually going to be a little harder for church life, what if the person is a Christian? They're totally off the hook. Uh, yes and no. Every one of their sins, including the ones they did against you, was laid on Christ, just like your sins were. And the Father in the darkness that surrounded the cross punished his Son for them to the last drop. Do we think that Christ made a partial or less than full payment? No, we don't. Then let's not try to mess around with what he'll do on the last day or what he did on Calvary's day. Right In our clearer moments, we should be trying to think that way. We don't need to take vengeance. Number one, we don't have the right to. Number two, he's going to pay for it on one of two days. So you might say, so what do I do Okay, if I don't sharpen the arrow, whetstone of memory, or if I don't uh, shoot it at him to try to like, hey, get you back because you really messed me up and even though judgment's going to happen, I don't trust it. What is the Christian called to do when sinned against? You're going to be sinned against. Well, forgive. I know that doesn't, that's not like, whoa, never thought of that. Forgiveness is when we take that arrow and break it so that it, we refuse to use it against that person. It's actually one of three promises we make to the person when we forgive them. I will not use this against you. I will not bring this up against you in front of other people. And the third one is I won't sit and watch reruns. I won't bring it up to myself. That's probably the hardest battle to fight there. I won't dwell on this myself. Christian love, verse 5, is not 
resentful, it's forgiving. And as we've talked about through, through all of this, the love that the Christian is to have for others is mirrored after or is being shaped into, well, into the way that God has loved you. And so have we sinned against God? Yeah, a time or two. Yep, we, we have. And how has he responded to the way that we have sinned? With lavish forgiveness. I mean, if I could just remind you of a few uh, scriptures that talk about the forgiveness that God has for us. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under his foot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And as one professor told me, and over that part of the sea, he puts a sign that says, no fishing. So we don't go in there and try to reel it back up. Hebrews 10, 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the kind of love you've been receiving. That love should transform us. Where we say, God is not a ledger keeper like that. He's a forgiving God. So how do I now love the people in my life who sin in a far lesser degree than every, anything we've ever done to God? We, our sin towards God Will net like is so much greater than the sins that we've received from others. If God can forgive me of my sins and his love transform me, then we ought to be as Christians the most forgiving people that walk this earth. We should be Christian husbands and Christian wives who say, I refuse to keep a record of wrongs suffered. I refuse. I fight that battle. I refuse to keep the arrows stocked away. I refuse to throw your sin back in your face when conflict arises. I won't do it because my God does not do that to me. That's hard and the, the weight of it is borne by the one who does the forgiving. I get that. I, 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 I understand you're, you're the one who's going to have to remind yourself over and over again. This is not what love does. Love forgives. And we can even see that connection between our forgiveness and the way we forgive others. In a few passages, real quickly, Matthew 6, where we pray as our Lord taught us. Forgive us our debts as we have to the same degree that we have forgiven our debtors. Christ goes on to say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the father forgive your trespasses. This is a desperately, desperately terrifying verse to ledger keepers. Matthew 18, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? 
as many as seven times. And you know, Peter was like, I'm going to seven times a whole lot. And you might laugh and be like, that's not that many. But then if you think about some of the people who've sinned against you, it's like, oh, they did it twice. You're done. So Peter actually is kind of shooting up there at seven. Jesus says, I tell you, 70 times seven. Now he's not saying count to 490 or whatever that number is. Math is not my strong suit. The point is forgive them. First Peter 4, 8, I think is like the verse that describes the way that Christians love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's even the context of it. Loving one another earnestly from the heart. Since love, you could even finish the verse, covers a multitude of sin. You might say, I'm a really good record keeper. I don't want to be, but I am. Pray that God would transform you. You might say, I haven't forgotten, so that must mean I didn't forget. I know of nowhere where you were commanded, for, like, erase your memory. What forgiveness is, is I refuse to bring it up against you. I refuse to bring it up against you to other people, and I refuse to bring it up to myself. Which means when it comes up in my own mind, I fight that battle again. No, I've forgiven. I've laid it down. That's the way that Christians love. Not insisting on their own way. Not easily irritated and not giving into resentfulness. And there's a really simple reason. Because that's not the way God loves us. The love that we receive has no self-insistence in it. No irritableness in it. No resentfulness in it. And so that's the way that we ought to love one another. And being recipients of that love, that love should transform us. And so if you're like horribly convicted, like I am working through some of these things, praying, Lord, my love isn't like this the way, sh- the way that it should be. Please, please shape me and mold me and make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not a prayer that he will ignore. That is not a prayer he'll say, No, I don't want you like this, son. A resounding amen will echo in your life. Now, he will probably give you more opportunities to work on it than we'd prefer. But he'll do it for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make us a people who love like this. We confess that your word is indeed sharper than any two-edged sword. We confess it. It cuts to the division between the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Please work on us, we pray. Make us a people who forgive like we've been forgiven. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com dot com.